back in a young church. Two great uh, interviews coming up for you. Uh, second one is going to be Tom Hartman. He's going to talk about the hidden history of the war on voting. Uh, and it's funny that in a democracy we got a war on voting, but we do. Uh, uh, but first guest uh, is with us now. Um, joining me now is Rishi Kumar. She is a congressional candidate. Oh, I'm sorry, he's a congressional candidate in California 18. Uh, so Rishi, uh, welcome to the Young Turks. How you doing? Very good. Uh, good to meet you again. We met at the Bernie rally in Santa Clara. That's right. So uh, Rishi, uh, let's talk about uh, your race. Uh, who are you running against? I'm running against uh, Congressman Anna Eshu, who is in the 28th year in office. Yes. Uh, now, why run against her? You know, most people will say she's uh, head of an important committee, uh, the House Health Subcommittee. Uh, and you know that's I assume it's a very democratic district, very blue district, right? Right. Yes. Okay. You got a Democrat in there. Okay. Problem solved. Well, I think there are big challenges in Silicon Valley, and uh, the core of which is uh, we have always had uh, technologically illiterate congressional members, which is what uh, Congressman Ro Khanna refers to. And uh, there are big challenges that we can solve here, and this is uh, really the heart of the economy of the United States. Technology is powering the economy. We are the 19th largest economy. And as a high tech executive, I believe I can bring value. But beyond that, you know, when you look at challenges that we currently have with healthcare, for example, that's a huge problem we have right now. And we have congressional leaders who are, you know, essentially the big money in politics is impacting the decisions they are making. For example, Congresswoman Anna Issue, I, I have a lot of love and respect for her. But uh, you know she's the number one recipient of uh, of uh, campaign money from the pharma industry, and she has not come around to supporting Medicare for all, uh, HR thirteen eighty four that Pramila Jaipal is sponsoring. So th that that's a that's an issue for me. That's a big issue for me. And uh, so there are also challenges with housing and transportation. We currently have an economy which is uh, fading just a little bit because there are jobs leaving the valley. There are people leaving the valley because the quality of life has gone co completely haywire. You know, we are stuck in traffic jams. Housing is a big problem. Homelessness has gone completely haywire, and those are challenges that we need to fix. We need elected leaders to bring a vision to the table, and this is what I see lacking. And that's the reason we have the energy, we have the leadership, we have the vision, and plus we have a great handle over the innovation economy. And that's the reason why I'm running. Yeah. So Anna Shu, uh, as you point out, she's the top recipient of uh, pharmaceutical uh, donations, campaign contributions. She, she, are you saying she beats the Republicans too, or is she the top just among the Democrats? Number one in America. Yes, number one. Number one in America. Okay. Uh, so look, folks will say uh, it's rude of you to point that out. Uh, there, you know, she has to take that money to win. What's your answer to that? Oh, you know, it's like it's on one hand you can take the money to win, and I probably may not be that concerned if that happens. But when you actually pass legislation that increases the price of healthcare and there is a track record for that, you know, where you are actually lobbying for the industry and not for the people, so that's a big problem. Yeah, I agree, it's a big problem. So uh, they just had a vote on the prescription drugs in the House, uh, so. Uh, they campaigned on lowering drug prices, and and then they came out with a bill uh, that said 
we should only lower drug prices for 25 drugs. Then there was a big back and forth with progressives, then maybe 35 and then 250. Um, I don't know where Congresswoman Shu came out on all that. What was her position on that bill? You know, I think uh, her position has softened a little bit because uh, there is a election playing out and uh, this is uh, our campaign has uh, really done a great job of engaging with people in Silicon Valley for the last year. And so the stance has softened just a little bit. But I think there is a lot of uh, frustration with the people here that uh, she could have done a lot more. 28 years of incumbency and the expectation was a lot more. And unfortunately, with never a challenger running against her, you know, it's been essentially you're flying under the radar. And what we have done is we have taken data points that have been talked about for many, many years. And we are basically taken that as a campaign talking point to really highlight the challenges that currently exist. And we believe we have a pretty good story and we are running a really good campaign towards the March 3rd. It's gonna be a good story. We'll, we'll likely shock the world on March 3rd. We are very excited. Okay, all right, I, I love it. Um, so it's a jungle primary in California. Uh, are, is there a Republican in the race? So is the is the question on March 3rd for you, uh, not whether you're gonna beat issue, that would be very, very, very difficult in the primary stage. Uh, you, it, you've got a shot at it if you're in the top two. And in California, it could be a Democrat and a Republican. It could also be two Democrats. So is your main competition in the primary one of the Republicans in the race? You know, there are five candidates running and essentially there's only one campaign which has been campaigning very, very hard and that's us. And, and so that's the story of this particular election. You know, I think Congresswoman Anna issue, she's also campaigning to an extent, but we are the ones that have gone to each of the 31 cities talking to people. We run three town hall meetings a month. So we believe we have created a really nice narrative with the people of our district. And that's the reason why we are feeling so pumped up and confident. So Rishi, you were on the Saratoga City Council. What'd you do before the City Council? So, you know, I was uh, I was an activist. I would take up challenges in the community and I would work on it. And even though I'm on the City Council now, I still operate like an activist. When I see something bad, something wrong, I, I just have to step in and do something. And we took on two challenges in my first uh, four years on the city council. We we challenged a water company that was actually gouging us. And uh, it was a private utility company and their water rates had gone up tremendously in a drought. Their profit went from 22 to $52 million. So I couldn't stay on the sideline. I said, let's do something about it. I had no idea what. And the story so far, Jank, we have reject, rejected, reduced, suspended seven water rate increases so far. And then we had problems with burglaries. I said, let's do something. And I was told by some of the people that, oh, you know, when you talk about burglaries, you'll drop the price of real estate of Saratoga. And I said, well, you know, I'm here to solve problems. That's the reason why, as a, why would a high tech executive jump into the world of politics? I said, I'm here to solve problems. And we dropped our burglaries by 47%, the largest drop in Silicon Valley. And the people voted me in, in 2018, the people of Saratoga, with the most votes compared to anybody in the history of Saratoga. So when somebody like from the world of high tech jumps into politics, we have a slightly different framework of how we go about solving problems. And I call it providing services cheaper, faster, better. I'm really enjoying this. It's a great story. And I believe in 2021, we'll be in Congress solving bigger challenges like healthcare, climate change, not beholden to the lobbyist, but beholden to the people. I call it people-centric behavior. And uh, it's gonna be a very exciting story for us. 
So you're rejecting PAC money and special interest group campaign money. Do you mean not just corporate PAC money, but all PAC money? Correct, all PAC money. We're not accepting any any PAC money because for me, that's one of the biggest challenges we have in America, which is the money that is dominating You know, from the PAC, special interest groups, the dark money that is dominating politics. And it's basically, the stifling the voice of American people, you know, our voice is not being heard. And that's the reason why we are we are pretty firm. We will never change that. People have told, come, come to my campaign page and they say, Rishi, you'll probably change your stance once you get elected. I said, never, never will I take any PAC money, any special interest group money, because we are running for the people. We are gonna solve the big challenges of the valley, housing, transportation, homelessness, that's our agenda. All right, well, I like that bold stance and I agree with it. Um, so then you've got drugs, you've got Medicare for all, you've got uh, you know the local issues that you mentioned and campaign finance reform. What else is on your progressive agenda? So, so climate change is a big one, the Green New Deal, it's at a resolution stage, but creating a clean tech economy and essentially reducing our carbon footprint, that is very, very important because we are a ticking time bomb right now. It's, it's my global agenda at the national level, healthcare is very, very important. You know, I'm going to sign up for Medicare for All soon as I get elected, and we'll have participation from our district, which is currently lacking today. And then at the local level, we are talking about a Silicon Valley vision of solving the traffic gridlock that we have every year. And how do we do that? We're talking about 21 counties within reach of Silicon Valley, and there are about 12 million people. We are talking about connecting these 21 counties. 21 minutes, less than 21, 21 minutes commute time between the 21 counties. And we will create a mega Silicon Valley, expand out the economy, build out a tunnel system, a high-speed transportation hyperloop system that will provide the necessary infrastructure for us to expand the economy and create 10x, 20x more affordable housing compared to what we have right now. You know, our elected leaders here in Silicon Valley, Jank, haven't demonstrated the vision. That's the reason why we are in this in this big hole here with transportation, traffic issues, and homelessness gone rampant. So that's the opportunity we have, and this is really what we have been talking about to the people. So I, I love the idea of the hyperloop. I, I dream about that all the time. Uh, but Rishi, you solve the traffic problems in California, and you'll become president. <laughs> so, so more power to you. All right, everybody, check out RishiKumar.com, uh, and uh, we got all the links down below. Uh, if you're watching later on YouTube or Facebook, just go to the description box, click on those links. Uh, and for progressive candidates, uh, every dollar counts and every volunteer counts so much. Uh, and obviously, you just heard Rishi say no PAC money at all for him. Thank you so much for joining us on the Young Turks. We appreciate Thank it. Thank you, Jake. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. Okay, we're gonna take a quick break when we come back. Legendary Tom Hartman, one of the best progressive talk show hosts of all time. Uh, and he's got a new book out, The Hidden History of the War on Voting. We'll be right back. All right, back on the Young Turks. Joining me now is Tom Hartman, legendary progressive talk show host, also a New York Times bestseller uh, author. Uh, in fact, his book, The Last Hours of the Ancient Sunlight, I was turned into a movie by Leonardo DiCaprio called Eleventh Hour. His new book is the one you just saw, The War on Voting, The Hidden History of the War on Voting. Who stole your vote and how to get it back? Okay, I do wanna get it back. So, Tom, always great to see you. So, who stole my vote? 
Well, the Republicans. In fact, my <laughs> proposal to the publishing company was that the title should be the Republican War on Voting. And they were like, well, that's a little too partisan. And I'm like, but the Democrats are not, you know, there's no war on voting from Democrats. It's entirely right. Republicans. That's right. And so I remember seeing videos of Paul Weyrich back in, I think, 1980. So during the Reagan campaign. That's right. So does it go back to there or was it even earlier? Well, it definitely goes back to there. But back in the 1960s, William Rehnquist, who was a big bear of a guy, he was like 6'2 and you know 280 or something like that, a big guy. Um, he used to stand, this is how he made his chops in the Republican Party when he lived in Arizona. He would stand in the voting lines where Hispanics and Native Americans were voting and loud voices with his clipboard. And he was a lawyer, of course, so he ended up chief justice. Um, yelling, you don't look like you should be voting here. Prove to me you're who, you know, and, and basically intimidating voters. So, you know, this goes back a long ways, but there is a new twist on it that the Republicans introduced in 2002 and really played out well in 2004. That, frankly, I think just in the last couple of years, in large part because of Stacey Abrams in Georgia, Americans are starting to figure out what the game is. So, before we get to 2002 and 2004, Part of the reason I wanted to go back in history and find out when the Republicans started trying to intimidate people's vote is one, because you're so good at history and I wanted to find out. But two, because I wanted to see when the turn came. And it's interesting that the turn seems to have come around the time that the Republican Party went from being the more progressive party to the more conservative party and the southern strategy and trying to get you know the white racist votes in the south, etc. Instead of being the party that is more expansive and trying to get everybody involved, do you think that might have had something to do with it? I think it's possible. I think really the the modern era of the Republican Party stealing votes came about as a result of the the Nixon disaster. Um, after that, there was particularly after Jerry Ford got defeated, you know, for president by an unknown peanut farmer from Georgia. Um, there were books and. Books being written about how this, you know, the, the Republican Party is going the way of the Whigs. But coincidental with that, part, excuse me, coincidental with that in uh, 1976, as you know, the Supreme Court, the Buckley decision said for the very first time in American history that if uh, billionaires want to own politicians or want to run for political office themselves and use their own money without limit, that's no longer considered bribery or corruption. That's considered First Amendment protected free speech. Two years later, in the Boston versus Bellotti decision, they they extended that logic to corporations, and that opened a floodgate of corporate and billionaire money into the Republican Party. At that point, the Democratic Party was still funded by the unions, and so they weren't interested. And the consequence of that, we're still living with that. That was when the Republican Party in the modern era really sold out. Was 1980? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, okay, let's talk about now the newer era of uh, voter. Intimidation and 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 how they're trying to steal your vote since then. So what happened in 02 and 04 you that you mentioned? Well, it it really starts in 2000. In in 2000, George W. Bush needed Florida to win. He was George Bush was the governor of Texas. His brother Jeb was the governor of Florida, and so Texas gave Florida a list of Texas felons. Florida compared that list with the list of Florida voters, and because. Uh, African-Americans and Hispanics have relatively small name pools. Uh, all Most African-American names come from English. Most Hispanic names come from Spanish. Um, whereas the, the broader population has names from you know Greek and Scandinavian languages and all kinds of things. 
Um, there were a lot of people who had the same first and last names, and they didn't meant they didn't match middle names. So depending on whose lawsuit you're looking at, um, Jeb Bush threw somewhere between 30 and 90,000 African Americans off the voting rolls in Florida in the months just before the 2000 election. This put George Bush in a position to steal the election with the help of the Supreme Court. But when the word leaked out a few months later that this is how he did it, people were furious. The ACLU launched, I mean, there were multiple lawsuits against him. Um, there were demonstrations in the streets, there, you know, it was huge. So the Republican Party said, okay, we gotta figure out, this works really well, right? The, you know, Comparing these voter lists and throwing off people with common names, which is mostly Hispanics and African-Americans, a lot of Asians too. Um, but they're a smaller part of the population. This works really well, but we gotta figure out a way to do it that doesn't piss people off. They don't really know about it. And so in 2002, with the Help America Vote Act, and Bob Ney, who uh, was a Republican from Ohio, was principal author of that at the time, and he's a friend of mine. And he said, you know, we came up with this thing called the provisional ballot. And the provisional ballot is, uh, you know, if you're not on the voter list and you show up to vote, uh, they don't give you a regular ballot, they give you a provisional ballot. It looks identical. You know, you think that you voted, but it goes in a different box or in a different kind of envelope, depending on the state. And they're simply never counted, uh, even in, in, unless the election is contested. And even if the election is contested, the only provisional ballots that are actually counted are those where people went within the following week after the election to the Secretary of State's office and proved with birth certificates and passports and proof that they used to be uh, registered and proof of residence that they are who they say they are and get themselves back on the voter rolls, which is maybe you know two people out of every thousand. So starting in 2004, and we saw this hugely. I mean, John Edwards on my show, the vice presidential candidate in 2004 was you know raging about this um, because John Kerry wouldn't take these guys on. There were more unopened provisional ballots in Ohio than the margin of George Bush's victory in Ohio. And of course, Ohio gave him the election. So what happens is, and and 2000, the exit poll showed that Bush had lost Florida by tens of thousands of votes. Nobody could figure that out until after we figured out what happened. In 2004, the exit polls showed that John Kerry easily won Ohio. Um, but of course, that's not what happened in the official vote. So, and the reason why is because people got provisional ballots. They didn't know that they'd never be counted. They walked out of the voting booth and they saw the exit pollster and told them that they had voted for John Kerry. It got duly noted. And thus was born redshift, which is where the exit polls say the Democrat won, the official results say the Republican won, a phenomena that largely only exists in states with Republican secretaries of state. And in some cases is as high as you know 5.7, 5.96% of a shift and you know we took down the Ukrainian election, the Yanukovych election in 2004, because there was about a five point shift between the exit polls and the actual ballots. Every country in Europe calls elections the night of the election based on exit polls, but it takes three days to count the vote. We just saw this with Boris Johnson. It took three days to count the vote, but they called it that night, or they largely called it that night, it was close. Um, you know, if they're within a percent, they always put a caveat on the, on the exit polls. So. Now we see, in fact, let me just give you some real quick stats here. This is from page 92 of my book. In, in the 2016 election, Hillary, and I'm gonna round these to even numbers. Hillary Clinton, according to the exit polls, carried Florida 40, 48 to 46%. But according to the actual count, Trump carried it 49 to 47% or 48%, 47.8. In North Carolina, the exit polls showed Clinton winning 48 to 46%. 
But the uh, but the actual result was Trump 49, Clinton 46. That's a 5.9 percent redshift in North Carolina. In Pennsylvania, the uh, Clinton, according to the exit polls, won by 50.5 percent to Trump's 46 percent. But when the eligible votes were counted, Trump carried the state by 48 to 47 percent, a redshift of 5.6 percent. In Wisconsin, there was a redshift of 5.1 percent. Again, the exit polls showed Hillary Clinton beat Trump by almost four points, 48.2 to 44.3. But you know, the the official vote after Scott Walker's voting purges were done uh, was quite different. The exit polls show clearly, for example, that Hillary Clinton won the electoral college as well as the majority of votes in the United States. So you know, this this game is going on. So Tom, if I was a Democrat that was going into an election like that in a red district or a red state, I'd do everything in my power to make sure that they didn't do that. Lawsuits, press, you name it. So, and now I know folks like Stacey Abrams, Andrew Gillum are mounting an effort. How, yeah, how good an effort are the Democrats, Democrats, the Democratic Party overall, putting forward to combat all this? Because just accepting giant electoral swings, these, of course, all these close states are going to be decided within six points. You're just letting the Republicans steal every election if you do that. So, what, what's their counterattack in this? Does it have any chance of working? Well, up until really the last four years or so, the Democratic Party had had their head, head in the sand. Back in 2005, uh, after that disaster in Ohio, a group of us who were on Air America went to the went to the U.S. Senate, went to D.C., and we met with six or seven Democratic senators and raised this issue. At the time, we thought it was probably rigged voting machines. We didn't know about provisional ballots and purges. Um, but in any case, we were encouraging these Democratic senators to to do something about it. And you know, one of the senators got up and said, "Well, um, a, a senator whose name you would immediately recognize." Um, she said, well, here's the problem. Uh, if we go off on these kind of conspiracy theory things, then American voters, particularly Democrats, will not trust that their vote will be counted. And if they don't trust that their vote will be counted, they're not going to show up and vote. So we don't want to be scaring people away from the polls. And that's been kind of the official position. I've had that conversation actually with a number of Democrats over the years. That's been pretty much the official position of the Democratic Party up until it became so obvious in Georgia that Brian Kemp would throw a million voters off the voting rolls in the four years before the election, 200,000 just in the year before the election. And then he got you know, 50,000, he, he beat Stacey Abrams by 50,000 votes. It became so obvious that it can't be ignored anymore. And thus, HR1, the first piece of legislation out of Nancy Pelosi's house, actually solves much of this problem, which is why Mitch McConnell won't even have a conversation about it. All right, well, I'm glad that 20 some odd years later, they're on to it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Which pretty much describes the Democratic Party. Uh, we'll, we'll be in the saddle 20 years later, we'll show them. Uh, but it is good news and I'm thrilled that Stacey Abrams and Gillum and others are working on it and uh, applaud their work. All right, everybody check out the hidden history of the war on voting. Uh, Tom, as always a pleasure, uh, thank you for thank joining you. us. Thank you, Jack, it's always an honor to be on your show. Thank you, brother. All right, so we're gonna take a quick break for the members. We're gonna come back to a post game. John Iroll is gonna be back. So me and John post game, tyt.com slash join. If you're watching on YouTube, click the join button. 499 layer gets you the post game both later and live. Go.